Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In this series, we'll see the many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece. We'll also be challenged in how we're designed to live out the gospel through the local church. In the second mini-series, Paul takes chapters 5-7 through to explore the implications of our gospel-formed identity in Christ and the way it challenges worldly norms in the ways that we handle our relationships. For more information, please visit www.doxa-church.com. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? So if, you were, if you're just coming in, you realize that this is a PG-13 topic, so keep that in mind. If parents, you would like to bring your kids into the children's ministry, uh, I won't be overly graphic, just to be clear, but still, we are talking about sex, so I want to honor you as parents. Let's uh, pray as we look at this text together. Father, we come to you and thank you for the gift of our bodies, <clears throat> the gift of sexuality, Uh, the gift of marriage. We thank you for the way in which you designed us to glorify you in every possible way. And we pray this morning as we look at your word that you would show us what that means. Lord, we want to submit to you and your word and we want to be changed by you. Uh, So we ask that your spirit would do a work in our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Um, if you have been with us, you know we've talked a little bit about the place of Corinth Uh, If you're new with us, we've been in the letter uh, to the Corinthian church. It's really Paul's second letter, but in our Bibles it's called 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you know much about Corinth, you recognize the the problem that Paul is addressing. Uh, In Corinth, they had a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, and supplied by that temple were cult prostitutes for uh, people to engage with. Uh, most parties that took place anywhere near the, the, t- the temple also uh, ensured, the host ensured that they would provide a prostitute for people's pleasure. Uh, most people on their commute home from work um, would find themselves with a prostitute. It was just a normal 
practice in their culture. That's why Paul is specifically addressing prostitution. But for our sakes, as most of us maybe aren't facing that particular issue, we're just going to apply it to sexual immorality because that is the overarching idea here that Paul is confronting in the Corinthian church. And this is not something we're not uh, faced with on a daily basis. I mean, we live in a center that is saturated with sexual indulgences and significant brokenness around sexuality. And so we need this word as much as anyone. Now, I want to be clear as Paul is going to confront this sin, and if we're not careful, we only get at the negative side of it, but we do want to be faithful to the text. I want to be clear that Paul and God are not joy kills. They are not against sexuality. God created sex. God said it was good. God created it not only for your enjoyment, but also for his glory and for obviously procreation. What we want to do as we think about sexuality is we want to realize it's a gift given to us from God. When we submit to him and engage in it in the ways he intended, it's a beautiful thing. It brings about life. It brings about flourishing. When, however, on the other hand, we don't submit to God. We don't follow his ways. We, we don't engage in it in the way he designed. We will experience, as Paul says, brokenness in our own body because it's a sin against ourself and brokenness in our relationships. And one of the most important things I think we need to embrace as we start this is that sex itself is an act of worship. Paul says to, Rome in, to church in Rome in Romans 12, verse one, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. I hope that you know this by now, but when we say worship, I hope you don't just think that means singing. That's the, the downside of when we're not careful with our language as we say, you know, the people who are up here are worship leaders. But let me ask you in the room, how, how many of you are worship leaders? Raise your hand if you're a worship leader. Okay, if you're a Christian, raise your hand. Okay, now keep it up. How many of you are worship leaders? Keep it up. Because the idea is you're supposed to live your life with your body in such a way that it brings God glory, that it tells the truth about what he's like so that others will see and give him glory for the life that you live. Give him praise, acknowledge who he is and why he's worthy of our adoration. Paul David Tripp, in his book, Sex in a Broken World says this, in sex you are always worshiping something. Your sexual life is shaped by the worship of God, the worship of self, the worship of your sexual partner, or the worship of what you get out of sex. God designed you to be a worshiper. You don't put down your worship nature when you're having sex. So as we think through our sexuality and how we engage in it, uh, I want to make it really clear, our sexual life, our sexuality reveals who or what we worship. And whoever or whatever you worship is what you ultimately submit to. You submit to the God that has the center of your heart, that's captured your affection. Paul, in addressing the Corinthians, starts off with one of the slogans that they're fond of saying, all things are lawful for me. It's one of their sayings. Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. Again, he says it, all things are lawful for me. Paul continues, but I will not be dominated by anything. In quoting this slogan, what Paul is doing, he's saying, you guys walk around 
Some of you probably in your, your, your newfound freedom in Christ and you engage in a cultural, cultural form of excusing your sin because you just say, hey, I get to do anything I want. Whatever pleases me is what I should engage in. And that's not Christian freedom. Christian freedom, biblically, is not I get to do whatever please, pleases me, but rather I have the power to do what pleases God and does good to my brother or sister. That's what Christian freedom is. It's the freedom to no longer be a slave to sin, but rather be free to live a life of obedience to God himself that blesses other people. So Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. He knows that the submission to sexual immorality is a way of becoming a slave to it. By the way, uh, just a little pause. Someone came to me after the first gathering and said, "Um, uh, Jeff, you know, this is a tough topic because people don't want you to touch this one. And I said, that's always evidence of someone's idol. Because whatever you worship the most, you get most threatened by when it gets threatened. Right? And so you may be here today going like, man, don't, you, don't talk about this part of my life. And I would just say it's likely then you are not free. Because when you're free, you open, it, you open your hands and you say, okay, Lord, whatever. Whatever you want. Whatever you'd have me do. That's what I want. That, that's real freedom. Not only does Paul want us to be free and not dominated by anything, which when he used that language, we're gonna get to it next week. He talks about the husband and the wife's bodies belong to one another and they should therefore submit their bodies to one another in sexual purity and, and, and really satisfying one another. He, he, he says, uses the word dominated uh, here, which he's, it's a little foreshadowing because later he's gonna reference the idea that that's what happens in our bodies when we give ourselves to the other. In a sense, we're submitting ourselves for the other's good. Here he's saying, you're being dominated. You're being taken advantage of. You're being used when you surrender your body, in this case, to a prostitute. In our case, to any form of sexual immorality, we are being dominated. But not only are we being dominated and controlled, but we're also bringing harm to ourselves and to others. If you're in the room and you're single and you're engaging in a sexual uh, lifestyle with someone else outside of marriage, which is the only context in which God tells us to engage in sexual uh, engage, uh, relations, is in the, the relationship between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman committed to a lifelong covenant of marriage till death do us part. That's the safest place to engage it because what you're doing is you're, you're surrendering your body to another in being the most vulnerable you could ever be and so you need to have the safest place you could possibly ever have knowing that they're not gonna reject you if somehow you fail, fall short. And so, the Apostle Paul's going, you guys, are, you guys are hurting one another and you're hurting yourself because you're submitting yourself in such a way that not only are you being dominated by the desires of the flesh, but in your domination or being dominated, you're hurting the others. There may be some of you in the room who are not yet married and you're living in a relationship with somebody else and engaging in sexual immorality and you say to yourself, yeah, but we love one another. And I would say, if you really love one another, you'd actually commit yourself to lifelong commitment. Because to engage in a sexually immoral relationship outside of marriage is another way of saying, I'll, I'll enjoy you as long as you're enjoyable, but I always want the option to find another. And that, that is not helpful. That is damaging to the human psyche to know that I'm always exchangeable. I'm always 
at anyone's disposal. Marriage is the way in which we say, that will not happen. I am devoted to you. And when you surrender your life to me, I have already said I've surrendered mine for you. So Paul doesn't want us to be dominated. He doesn't want us to engage in anything that would be hurtful. You know, it's interesting, in the wake of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, you would think freedom would have produced life. But what do we have as a result of the sexual revolution? We've got the Me Too movement. We've got greater rise of sexual uh, addiction. We've got uh, tons and tons of statistics that tell us that marriages are not making it, that rape is on the rise, that sexual harassment is a normal activity that finally is getting exposed, thankfully. But nonetheless, that comes from something. And I think it comes from this idea that at the heart of my sexuality is my desires being satisfied in any, in any means or, or through any process that I choose. There's a reason why people are making so much money on pornography, because we've told ourselves sex is primarily about me and therefore I can objectify anybody I want for my own selfish desires. So here's the question, who's the master of you? Who's the master of your sexuality? Who is the God that you submit to in this part of your life? Paul continues, not only is it worship that our bodies are made for worship, but our bodies have a future. He goes on in verse 13, food is meant for the body and the stomach for food. It's another one of their slogans. They're basically saying like, hey man, I get hungry, I eat. And then, then they say, God will destroy one and the other. Body, however, Paul says, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Here's what's going on. The Corinthians are going, hey, when I get hungry, I eat. When I have sexual desires, why can't I engage them in the same way I engage in my stomach? Besides, our bodies are gonna get destroyed anyway, so who cares what we do with them? That's, that's the Corinthian kind of thinking. That's their philosophy. So much wrong with this. <laughs> Hopefully you can see it. The first thing that's wrong with this, Paul, Paul says, yeah, your stomach is made for food, but your body is not made for sexual immorality. Your body was made for the Lord. Your body was made to glorify him. Your body was made to be a display of what God is like and how he interacts with humanity. Also, what's wrong with this is the idea that you're just a soul with a house. That your body doesn't really matter, that it's just gonna fade away, that it's just gonna burn up in the end. And this is anti-Christian, by the way. The early church at one point stood against this, which... It's called Gnosticism. This is the, the thinking of Plato came into the early church and the Stoic philosophers began to, to adopt this idea and even some of the Jews and Christians were beginning to believe that we merely are souls. And the whole idea is that we're trying to escape this physical prison that we live in called our bodies. And that one day, as the famous song uh, we sing says, I'll fly away, right? 
And this idea that we'll leave our body in a disembodied state and live forever with God without a body. That's called Gnosticism at the heart, that the body's bad and we need to get out of it. And besides, what we do in it doesn't really matter. And you guys can see the philosophy. If I say that the body is not spiritual, then I can justify anything I do with my body because it's just a house of the soul. Paul says, no way. You you aren't just a soul with a body, you are a body. Your body is part of who you are. And he's really clear here, I hope that you can see it, and we're gonna look at it later in 1 Corinthians 15. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Later on in chapter 15, he's gonna talk about the resurrection and that we will have a glorified body just like Jesus did. And I don't want you to miss this, church. Family, as we think about this, Jesus in his body obeyed God perfectly, submitting to God the Father on our behalf so that we would have perfect righteousness in a human body or I should say better, as a human body. And as a human body, Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus took on all of our sin, including our sexual immorality. And in his body, Jesus, who is without sin, never gave in to sin, but overcame sin, paid for it at the cross, crucified it, buried it with his body, and then was risen again with a physical body. That physical body was the glorified body of Jesus that is now before God the Father representing us as people accepted, loved, and forgiven before God the Father. Now what's really important, if Jesus did not raise with a body that died on the cross for our sins, then there's nobody representing us in a body before God the Father, and therefore we are all hopeless. Does that make sense? Now here's something else. When Jesus rises from the dead, what is it that Thomas wants to see? Do you remember? His scars. His side, his hands. But I thought he had a glorified body. Yeah, this is a bit of a mystery to me, I'll be honest. Jesus in his glorified body carries with him the scars of our sin. Forever. What does that mean for us? I think Paul wants to make sure you and I understand you're gonna be raised with a glorified body and if that glorified body before it was glorified was engaged in sexual immorality, you need to understand that affects eternity. There's a reality that what you do today affects forever. I don't know how that's gonna work to be honest, but I'll tell you, it makes me sober-minded to think that in this body, I'm doing things that someday I will look back on and thank God that I'm forgiven because of Jesus, but still would have loved to have lived differently if I knew what the future was gonna look like. I think Paul wants us to keep that in mind that we don't just callously walk around thinking, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm just gonna get a new one anyway, so destroy this one. It's the, it's the first car, you know, it's the car you give to your kids, you know, that they're gonna, they're gonna break a few times, they're gonna get a couple accidents. You buy them the nicer car once they've been driving for a few years when they're 21, but not when they're 16, right? Some of us, I think that's what we think about our body. It's like, it's no big deal, I get a new one. Paul's like, that's wrong thinking. That's anti-gospel. It's not even in line with the scriptures. Now, to be clear, some of you are going, yeah, well, aren't we gonna get a new body? We're gonna get a glorified body. It's gonna be set free from sin. It's gonna be forgiven. It's gonna be healed. It's gonna be imperishable. It's gonna be glorious, whatever that is. I don't know, but it'll be amazing. 
It will be better, I promise you. But there is some reality Paul wants us to get at here in the sense that what we do in our bodies does matter. There is an eternal reality to who you are. You aren't just a soul with a body. You are a body. Jesus wasn't just a soul with a body. He is the God-man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It doesn't say the word put on flesh as a, as a coat. He became flesh. Third, Paul wants us to recognize there's a, there's a principle of unity here. That we are one with Christ. One with Christ. Do you not know, he says, that your bodies are members of Christ? So I then take the members of my body, actual members of my body, physical members, and make them members of a prostitute. Never! But do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? He's referencing Genesis, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There is a profound soul connection that takes place through sexual relationships. Everyone who's ever engaged in sexual activity, either morally in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, or immorally, knows that sex is not just a physical thing. There's a mingling of souls that goes on. It changes the very nature of the relationship. You, you cannot engage in sexual intimacy and not walk away different. It's impossible. And anyone who tells you differently, they're lying to you and they're certainly not in line with God's word. The two will become one flesh. Now I wanna be clear, this doesn't mean that just because you've had sex, you're married. But there is a, 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 a mingling of souls that happens in the, the oneness of sexual intimacy. Years ago, I was interacting with a young couple who wanted me to do their wedding. They were presently sleeping together and refusing to, to part from living in the same house and engaging in sexual immorality before marriage. And um, another pastor refused to do their wedding. And so they came to me and asked if I would do it. And I said, no, I won't. Uh, I'd love for you to, first of all, start our process of uh, what we would have done would be pre-engagement counseling, but you're, you have the ring on your finger, unfortunately. Most people, when they get the ring on their finger, they're only thinking about the wedding and not the marriage. That's why at DOXA, just to be clear, we do pre-engagement counseling, and then we do pre-marriage uh, preparation, and you can find out more about that online. But we, want, we realize in this context, this day and age, most people don't have a clue what marriage is, so when they say, I, 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 yes, I'll marry you, they're not, they don't even know what they're saying yes to. So we wanna make sure they know what it is, and we wanna prepare them well, and so I, I, we had made that a policy back in Tacoma when I was leading a church there. And, and so this couple wanted me to do their wedding. I said, no, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I, I would ask you to, to stop engaging in sexual immorality. I'd, you guys need to separate. If you're willing to do that and live in different places and not continue this, then I'm willing to walk through this with you. God is gracious. He forgives and he, he always gives us new starts. I'd love to see that happen for you. And they said, yeah, but we're already married anyway. We've been having sex. Isn't that marriage? And I'm like, oh man, just because you feel like you're married doesn't mean you are. You're just playing the game is what you're doing. And the problem is, in, in getting to actually pretend like you're married, you still always have the option to walk out because you didn't get married. And the problem is, in training yourself to engage in sexual intimacy with someone else with always having the option on the back end to walk away is a way of training yourself for when you are married to always have the option to find somebody else to satisfy your desires. 
Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it, applies to this too. When you train yourself to engage in a relationship of sexual immorality without a covenant of marriage, you're presently training yourself to be free to do it with someone else eventually. And some of you go, I would never do that. The statistics tell you differently. So I said no, and thankfully, a couple weeks later, they broke up. They came back, repented of their sin. Both of them, a year or so later, found themselves in another relationship. Started in our pre-engagement process, went through our pre-marriage process. Both of them are still happily married to this day. Praise God. Yeah. I cannot imagine what would have happened if they would have kept on going down the road that they had gone down. Well, I probably can. Like I said, the statistics tell us what generally happens. So here's the deal, family. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian yet, by the way, this may not make sense, but if you're a Christian, you know there's no such thing as my life and Jesus' life. Christ now is my life. And that's what Paul wants to make sure we understand that if we've been united with Christ, then we're one with Christ. And so why would I ever take my body, which belongs to him, and he in me, and unite it to sexual immorality? Why would I ever, why would I ever do that? And I think Paul wants us to understand how wretched this is. He says... Stephen Um says this, as the commentator I've been referring to for a while, he says this about this particular text. Our bodies are the place where God has chosen to live. The very thing he's chosen to make a part of himself. He's bound himself so tightly to us, even our bodies, because he wants to be with us, for us to be his and for him to be ours forever. No other religion would ever dare say anything even remotely close to this. Gods live in temples, not in human bodies. Gods keep their distance. They don't wrap themselves up with people, especially not their bodies. But this one does. Our bodies have tremendous value and they cannot be treated casually because they matter eternally. To be clear, anytime we engage in any form of sexual activity, moral or immoral, we are engaging Christ in that activity. Paul David Tripp says it this way, sexual sin is a horrific violation of my relationship with Christ. It is to love my pleasure so deeply that I'm willing to connect the Holy One to what is unholy. (laughs) Paul is describing an unthinkable act of selfishness, disloyalty, and rebellion. Since I am one with Christ and since sex creates a one flesh bond with a prostitute or anyone else for that matter, I'm essentially in my selfishness willing to unite Christ to a prostitute. No wonder Paul says never. It shouldn't surprise us that those of us who engage in ongoing sexual immorality don't have a vibrant walk with Jesus. Pretty hard to continue to rend ourselves spiritually from the one who is the lover of our soul so we can unite ourselves with something that he hates and still expect that we're still gonna have an intimate relationship. The two don't coexist. And 
some of you might go, man, that's a, a sobering thought to think that I'm bringing Jesus into this. And it should be. I, I will tell you as one who, before I surrendered to Jesus, I was, I, I was engaged in all kinds of wretched sin. And I, I, I will not boast in that. I'll boast in Jesus' kindness and grace to forgive me and change me. But at a very early age, I was exposed to pornography and that became a battle for me for many, many years. And I, as I, the reason why I got a little emotional reading this is because for me to think that when I came to Christ, it was still something I brought into my relationship with him just grieves my heart. You don't leave Jesus outside the bedroom door. You bring him with you. You don't leave him when you look at the phone. You bring him into it. So it may sober us to think that Jesus is with us in the middle of that, but I pray it also empowers you because you realize that you have the one who overcame sin. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way just like us, but without sin. So we have one who now in us can help us to overcome sin. Not only does he sympathize with all of our weakness and our struggle, but he has the power to overcome it. Amen? There's really good news that Jesus is with you. Even if for the moment it leads to shame because you know what you've done, it should lead to a great amount of power in knowing that he can help you overcome. C.S. Lewis, and I'm not gonna quote him exactly, but he, he said this about uh, our temptation and, and the person who, who is yet to be set free from sin. He said, the person who just gives in to temptation doesn't understand the weight of the power of sin because they haven't fought it very long. They just give into it immediately so they never really understood how bad it is, how difficult it is, how, how wretched it is. But the person who withstands, who withholds, who, who fights it, who doesn't give up, they understand the weight and the nature of sin fully. And there's only one who really, really understands the full weight and nature of sin, and that's Jesus Christ, because for all 33 years of his life, he held up under it and never gave into it. So if there's anyone who understands how bad sin is and how hard it is to overcome, it's Jesus Christ, but he overcame and so when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian here, I want you to understand that we don't just believe an idea about God far off, but when we come to submit ourselves to who God is in Jesus Christ, not only does he forgive us of our sins, but he comes to dwell in us and we get the very power that God exerted in raising Christ from the dead. So we're not powerless. We can overcome. We can say no to sin. So we bring Jesus with us, but not only do we bring his power to overcome sin, but we bring his grace for when we've given in to sin. Because the same God who wants to be with you to help you overcome watches you when you don't and cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And so that same God, Jesus Christ, is with you when you sin so you can turn to him immediately and go, forgive me for what I've done. Cleanse me, change me. I hate this. And then Paul ends, remember your body, not only is it a worship center, not only is it eternal, not only is it unified with Christ, but your body is owned by Jesus. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. We're God's temple. Now, there's some really good news about that. If you know anything about the Old Testament, the story of God's people, Israel, when they set up the tabernacle and also when they set up the temple, when they had everything right and everything in place and all the details were lined up and man, you know how much God cares about temples because there's like chapters and chapters and chapters written on how to set up everything. 
And they spent a ton of money to make it great. But then there's a sacrifice of an innocent lamb and bull and they take the blood of that, those animals and they sprinkle it on all the articles of worship as a, a way of saying we want to cleanse it of even, even our handiwork. The way we built it was tainted by our sin and so let's cleanse it from the shedding of blood because the scripture is really clear. Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins because life is in the blood and when we rebel against God, we rebel against the giver of life. So life must be taken to pay for the life rebellion that we've engaged in. And so they sprinkled all these articles, and as soon as they did, the, the, God's holy presence filled the temple. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, that's you. If you've been united with Christ, not only has he come to dwell, but he had to purify you so that he could. And he's purified you from all sin, past, present, and future, so that you could be a holy dwelling place in which God will find his home with you in you, and the blood of Christ shed on the cross truly cleanses you from your sins. And so if you have the spirit of God in you, though that might make you sober-minded in how you address your sexuality, it should give you great comfort knowing that God has already forgiven you for what you've done and come to dwell in you. And God wants us to understand that our bodies are a holy place. How many of you guys have ever gone to uh, a cathedral in Europe, you know, like St. Peter's Basilica, in Rome or anything like it, you walk in those places and you are just full of awe. The beauty, the splendor, the majesty, the story of God in the stained glass windows and the tapestries hanging on the walls. And you're, you're meant to, to just find yourself in worship when you're in those places, but how much more the physical body that will last forever as the temple of God be a form of inspiration and worship, we should look at our bodies and go, God, you chose me to cleanse and to dwell in. I'm in awe. And therefore, I don't want to in any way destroy it. Can you imagine someone running into St. Peter's Basilica with a spray can and just graffitiing the walls? Or worse yet, making it into a brothel? For sexual immorality? You'd never, you'd, you'd never, you'd drive it out. You could never imagine that happening. That's the picture Paul wants us to have about our, our bodies. And not only are we a temple, but we've been purchased. We've been bought. The value of your body is seen at the cross where Jesus gave his life in exchange for yours to purchase you out of slavery, to sin, to be free. That's how valuable you are. That's how worthy your body is to God. And this idea of being bought with a price would bring any Jewish person's mind right back to Gomer. Some of you are familiar with the story of the prophet Hosea and God in wanting to show Israel what his relationship with them was like as they were unfaithful to him, as they continued to give themselves over to other gods. He, he called it spiritual adultery. So he commands Hosea, a prophet, to marry a prostitute name is Gomer, in order to enact the drama of God's love for us. And she continues to unfaithfully give herself to other men, eventually finds herself sold back into sexual slavery as a prostitute. She's standing on the block, ready to be auctioned off once again, naked, ashamed, in front of everyone for all to see as they examine her body and decide whether or not they want to pay for her. And in the crowd, she hears, five shekels, and she realizes she knows that voice. 10 shekels. She begins to notice the voice and 
looking for the voice in the crowd, 15 shekels sold. 15 shekels, and she realizes it's her husband. And he embraces her, and he says, sweetie, come home. This isn't where you belong. This is not who you are. And he loves her with the eternal, faithful, covenantal love that never gives up. And God is saying to his people, this is what I'm like for you. You've prostituted yourself over and over and over again, and I will never give up on you. I love you. I purchased you with my son's life. Come home. This is not where you belong. This is not the life I have for you. And thankfully, the one standing on the block, when the father says that to us, is Jesus. He's not the one, we're not the ones being publicly shamed for our sin. Jesus was publicly shamed for our sin. He was naked, he was mocked on, he was spit on, he was rejected. And the father looks at the son and he says, you took what was theirs so that they could be mine. That's true for all of us here. We've been bought with a price. And if we believe that, then we will respond in the way that Paul exhorts us. Flee sexual immorality. Flee it. When you see what it cost Jesus to purchase us back out of our slavery to sin, then you want nothing to do with it. You want to run from it. You understand how much it cost God to not only forgive you, but to cleanse you and to set you free. Flee, which would bring to the, Jew, the Jew's mind Joseph running from Potiphar's seductive wife. I love how Paul David Tripp puts it. If you're going to live out the sexual domain of your life and the way that God has called you to live, you're going to have to be willing to do a whole lot of running. You have to be willing to run from thoughts that work to paint as beautiful what God has forbidden. You're going to have to run from desires that at times seem too powerful to resist. You're going to have to run from the seductive whisper of the enemy who will lure you with his lies. You're going to have to run from situations and locations that play to your weaknesses. You're going to have to run from pride which tells you you're stronger than you really are. You're going to have to run from selfishness which would allow you to use others for your own pleasure. You're going to have to run from things you would love to participate in but would expose you to things you cannot handle. You're simply going to have to run from anything, anywhere, and from any person, all that is immoral in the eyes of your Savior, you have to be willing to run. Some of you, you need to, you need to run from loving your phone too much. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, I, I have learned to just go like, I've gotta put the thing down away from me. Because it's dominating you. Whether you're engaging in sexual immorality or not, it's dominating you, you're becoming a slave to it. Have a Sabbath once a week. Put it down. Rest from it. Some of you need to put the computer out in public. Some of you need to say, what does it look like for me to run and take very seriously how much this is damaging me? But I want to be clear, this is not just a call to monasticism. We're not just called to run away from, but we're also called to run to. Paul says we're supposed to run in such a way that we would so glorify God in our bodies. As you know, family, we call ourselves doxa here. That's the Greek word for glory. The word glory is when the true nature of God is made visible. 
when the attributes of the invisible God are made visible most fully through Jesus, but now as his body through the church. And so to glorify God in our sexuality is to say, what is God truly like and how can I display the glory of God in the way I engage in this part of my life? And how can I tell the story of what he's done through Jesus Christ and the way that I interact with others? Because I exist to show his glory and tell his story. So when I think about sexuality, we remember God is forever faithful to his covenant, even when we're unfaithful. That's why when we get married, it's till death do us part. So we're telling the story of God's love for us in Christ, faithful to the end, of God's glory, a faithful covenant God. God doesn't become one with any other than his bride, the church, through Jesus Christ. That's why sex before marriage is sin. God doesn't leave his bride, the church, to join himself to another. That's why adultery is wrong. God will let no sin enter into our relationship to corrupt the purity that he's created. He must do something about it. And he sent his son to not only forgive us, but cleanse us from our sin. That's why any form of sexual immorality is wrong because we're telling a lie about our God. That he somehow just lets it in and it doesn't matter. God doesn't leave his bride the church. He's faithful to her to the end. And here's another one that I think we need to hear these days. God is holy and he is holy other. And yet God who is holy other made himself one with us who are made in his likeness but are not the same. That's why marriage is between a man and a woman. Because a man and a woman are alike, but they're not the same. And they're telling the story of God who is holy other, and we are like him, but we are not the same. And in his unity of one who's holy other, becoming one with those who are like him, but not the same, we are now displaying in our marriages between a man and a woman who are holy other, but like and not the same, we're showing the glory of God, we're telling the story of Christ, the man husband who gave up his life for his bride, the church, to lovingly show us the Father's love. Amen? Amen. I know that's not popular, but it's biblical. And we need to be faithful to God's word as we say we exist for his glory and to tell his story. We're not here to tell our story. And I just wanna end with this, family. Sexuality and marriage is not about us. It is about him. It's about God's glory. And it's about telling Jesus' story. Our bodies are his. We exist for him. The Bible doesn't say, in the beginning, you. It says, in the beginning, God. And the whole story begins and ends with him and his glory. Let's pray that he helps us to live that out in our sexuality. Father, we come to you and we ask that you'd forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that we're cleansed, that we're accepted before you. And we ask that you'd help us to flee sexual immorality and so glorify God in our body. We want to tell the truth of what you're like in our sexuality, in our marriages, in our relationships. Forgive us for the ways we've told a lie about you. Forgive us for the ways that we've tainted your image. Forgive us for the ways it's hurt our own bodies and the bodies of others. We thank you that you're gracious to forgive. We ask that you'd help us in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.